0: And welcome to Close Reads. I'm Heidi White.
1: And I'm Tim McIntosh.
0: And David Kern is sadly no longer with us. No, he's not dead. He is he was having technical difficulties, Tim. It was really sad.
1: He's burying his computer. That's he's what not he said gone, he was doing. but his computer is soon. There to be
0: has gone. been a casualty of the show, but yeah, it's exactly. not David. Yeah. So far. And the way that
1: his computer was acting up before he him. It, yeah, I think it hates him. I think it's a saboteur, um, Mm. maybe a confederacy of dunces saboteur.
0: I was gonna say, I think that Ignatius J. Riley would have some choice words for David's computer for sure.
1: I think he would. I think he would.
0: Or alternatively, maybe is like his spirit is in David's computer.
1: Ooh, perhaps.
0: Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So we are about to talk about Tim and I. A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. And we are on part three, chapters seven through nine. That is what we are going to talk about today. Tim, any initial thoughts on this section other than its hilarity? Because I was laughing out loud, like crying at multiple points in this section.
1: I think the parts that are funniest to me is when Ignatius J. Riley is in the spotlight. And even more specifically, when Ignatius J. Reilly is writing.
0: Oh my gosh. Same, same. Right? When he is,
1: it's, it's a little bit more, it's not just monologuing, but when he has time to address the reader and kind of give the full flowering of his vocabulary and just goes on some rant against Myrna or like the commercial capitalistic overlord's you know, that have doomed him to a life of menial penance. When he gets to do that, it is so great.
0: I feel like you totally nailed that really well. The, me- the life of menial penance. Okay, that I was have a question. worthy of Ignatius J. Riley,
1: I was going to say, do you find when you spend a lot of time with an author, does the vocabulary and syntax of the author kind of I don't know. Do you feel like soaked enough that you start speaking like that author?
0: I really want to say yes, because I think that would make me a much better communicator. I don't know. I've never paid attention to that or noticed that, but I'd like to think that that's true. And I, I would like to think that I could speak with the Hilarity and eloquence of Ignatius J. Riley without picking up a single one of any of his other characteristics. His other bad Not habits, one. Yes. <laughs> okay, but but look, he
1: well, I, he's very well spoken.
0: He's smart. That's what we talked about last week, right? When David said, "Is he smart?" You said no, but you were so wrong. And now now you're.
1: <laughs> I, he's I stand smart. by what I. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe I need to step back on that cuz I don't think he would have this level of eloquence if he wasn't smart. I think that the kind of smarts that he cannot demonstrate is a kind of smart, smarts that's very important to me. And so, I was just like, yeah, he's just not Fair. smart. Fair. Right.
0: I think that's true. It is it's a question of definitions. Yeah. Um is there an adjective you'd use to describe his level of intelligence if not smart? Like is there an alternative adjective you would use? Oh, a
1: word that is kind of a synonym for- Like if um, he's not
0: smart. Like I said, I don't think he's wise, but I think he's smart. Like if you mm-hmm. were to say, I don't think he's smart, but I think he's-
1: Myopic. Like he's just very yeah, nearsighted. But, that
0: doesn't, but you could be myopic and not have this. I mean, he is myopic. That's true. But that's not really, that doesn't seem to describe his capacity yeah. for communication and knowledge.
1: Um, I started to say Byzantine, but Byzantine kind of has notions of, um, like endless bureaucratic and administrative tunnels that one has to kind of go through. So that's not really, that's not what I mean. He's not Byzantine. Um.
0: He might want to be Byzantine.
1: Yeah, he might want to be. Too bad I don't think he is. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I, I would say medieval but mm-hmm. I think you would take pride in that and I think that you might object to that I
0: absolutely object mm-hmm. to that so that's why I didn't say it object to that it. right well you I did that's
1: why I didn't it. say it well, yeah, well yeah. I just it <laughs> you was... said it by
0: saying you weren't going to say it
1: right right exactly
0: you know what they call that in psychology adjectives what do they call it passive aggressive that's <laughs> so
1: <laughs> that's so good <laughs> There's a name for your illness, Tim. Right. It's uh, passive. It's being passive aggressive.
0: <laughs> all right. Lesson learned about Tim. He's gonna say what he wants to say. I'm not, I'm without just,
1: really without really right? saying it. Okay, is there something that stood out to you about chapters seven uh, through nine, Heidi? So
0: I just okay, A. I'm I'm having I'm having such like a, this um war, internal war about this book, because I I can't think of the last time I laughed so hard reading a novel, like out loud laughing. I was reading, I have a house guest right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was reading on the couch earlier today to get ready for the podcast. And like I was like crying, like I was reading these long passages from that working boy letter. Oh, yeah. Or journal entry or whatever it is at the end of. And I we've got to read some of our favorite passages. So from right, yeah. Please, can we? Um and I was laughing so hard. There were like tears, like rolling down my face. It's been a long time since I've read a book and laughed out loud. Like how, we say that really flippantly, right? And we put it in text, LOL. How many of us are actually Actually are right? right. Like this was a for real LOL. So I love that. However, I still can't figure out what this book is about. And like, I can't figure out what the plot is on and all these side characters. And so maybe you can help me get organized in my head. I feel like just the, I can't tell what all of these, th- how all these threads are going to converge. Yeah. Um, I don't have a sense of that. And I think I said this last week and I'll say it again, that I'm hoping that when we get to the end, they'll all tie together so satisfyingly that I will feel like it was worth it to feel kind of led down the garden path um, throughout the novel, uh, which I do. And then the other thing is that I, it really is just grossing me out. Uh-huh. Like it is grossing me out. There's a so lot of flatulence I in this section. I, I can't figure out if I like this book or not, in spite of the fact that I'm sitting on the couch, tears rolling down my face laughing, which is a pleasant experience. So I really am having a bit of a an, an inner war about it. And I know you love it, so convince me to.
1: My, my friend, yeah. Matt, I saw him uh, after church on Sunday and he came up to me and he's not listening along with the podcast Um but he follows us on the Facebook page, and he said, "What's up? Why is there so much hate for a Confederacy of Dunces?" It's a fair now, question because this right? is like
0: a smart man book, right? Like this I is think one those, it is. Like, smart men are going to read this book and be like, "You get me." I I'm laughing hard. I love it. None of the it, this is like a guy book. So,
1: okay, I have a theory about that. That I have developed since my conversation with Matt.
0: Okay, and Proceed I want to roll lay it, it out me. to you. Okay,
1: um, it does involve a little bit of gender profiling.
0: Fair, I okay. think I think it's warrants it because there seems to be, and here's why: it's there seems to be a pretty clear gender divide, even in in on the Facebook page, uh, which is where we're getting the most feedback about the book. And so I think it's fair to ask that within the context of our specific reading experience of the book. Hey, why is there such a big gender divide? Uh Please take it away, Tim. Address the question.
1: (laughs) Okay. Here's my hot take. I wonder if it has to do with that kind of traditional notion that I actually think has a lot of bearing in reality, maybe even in biology, that, um, it's a little bit easier for men to compartmentalize certain aspects of this book and just focus on what I think is the main thing, which is the humor of the book. And they can kind of bracket away some things that I wonder if some of our female listeners have a harder time bracketing away. Namely, his he's just a very unappealing character is Ignatius J. Riley. And he seems to be a spokesperson for something that a lot of people, I think yourself included, hold dear, which is kind of an embrace or a, a, at least a sadness over the loss of a kind of more medieval spirit. And yeah, I think like, okay, even if I, I mean like there's, I want, I want to be clear. Like I, There are certain aspects of like the medieval world, the medieval cosmology that I find really appealing. And so when Ignatius is kind of the spokesperson for that vision of reality, part of me is just like, I don't like that. I don't like that he does that. But it's pretty easy for me to just like kind of bracket that away and say, but it's part, but it's. But he's so funny and he's so repulsive. And it's just, it makes me laugh that the medieval, whatever it is, satire doesn't bother me.
0: Right. I'm not bothered, but I, I agree with you. I think that the compartmentalization piece is really key to this book. There's, there's such an obvious emphasis on the physicality and on gross physicality, not just in Ignatius, but in other characters as well. Um, And, and so I think we're, that's pushed into our face for a reason it's, it's like almost, I almost feel like he's like rubbing our face in it. And, Mm. and I think he's doing that on purpose. And so I'm trying to enter into the spirit of it and be like, okay, so I'm just going to read this description of how he's like chomping on a hot dog. And it's like, yeah. Pink flesh in his mustache and it's hanging out of his mouth like a cigar butt and it's boiling in the water like paramecia Mm -hmm. like I'm just gonna Mm -hmm. like I'm gonna I'm all in like I am gonna read this and I might be throwing up in my mouth a little bit but this is my job and I'm a professional right like so
1: yeah I yeah I
0: am kind of like pushing through that because I I realized that that he's doing that on purpose and making some kind of comment on the physicality and kind of forcing us to engage in it. Um, and like I said, it's not just Ignatius. Um, it's it's everybody else. Like that description of Lana and how she's sitting on the bar stool and her buttocks oh, are like squeezing it gosh. and pushing it it's into the ground. It's so funny. It's hilarious. And also I'm like, ew. And it's also a little right? bit like, repulsive. Right? And it's yeah. clear that that's his, he's doing that on purpose. So Tim, why, why, what, what is point is he making? That's not, that's beyond the funny, right? It is funny, but it also is, it's something else too, right? Why the emphasis on the physicality?
1: Which brings us to my second hot take of the podcast. Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason this book is a classic is that it's hard to put a lid on it. And what I mean is, you and I, in on the, the play's the thing, so often we get to the end of the play and we say, hey, what was Shakespeare trying to get across in Richard II? What was he trying to get across in Hamlet? And so often we say, well, he could mean, the point of the book might be that Hamlet is an indecisive character, or it might mean, he might mean that, Um, Hamlet is kind of a great pre-modern hero. He's kind of like at the front edge of like the Renaissance and the old world is breaking down, or he could mean this, or he could mean that. And we get done where like, I think any one of those are like viable ways of reading Hamlet. And there are a variety of different ways of reading Richard II. There's a certain opaqueness to Shakespeare that makes him so invigorating to read and discuss and debate. And I think there's something like that going on in this book. Mm -hmm. There's something really opaque about what exactly is the author trying to do here? Like, what what is the primary theme? Whereas, okay, Anna Karenina, by contrast, when you get to the end of Anna Karenina, like Tolstoy has a point, and I think he makes it with great dexterity and beauty Mm -hmm. And, but you kind of know where he is at the end of the book. Whereas I think that this book falls more in line with something like sh- the, the opaque, the opacity of Shakespeare. Hmm. And so when you're asking, like, what's the point? I'm like, I don't really want to answer that. I mean, I do, sure. I do, but, um, and I'm, I, and we'll be willing to make guesses by the end of the book. But I just wanted to highlight that I think there's something, <sighs> Deliberately, um,
0: like ambiguous or distant. unsaid, or yeah.
1: yeah,
0: huh? So that's that's interesting to me, and I'm I'm gonna receive that and not challenge it because I feel like there are certain books that one of them being the infamous book of the dun cow, right? That I feel like I just got it. Mm-hmm. And you didn't, you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. I just was like, I love this book and I get it. And you were like, what's going on with this book? Yeah. Right. And that's kind of how I am with this one. Like, like what's going on? I think it's funny. And I think that it is. And actually, to me, Ignatius J. Riley, straight up. I I find him the most understandable character in the book. Not I'm not saying relatable, but I, like, he, and he dominates the book. He takes over the book, right? He is the book. But there's all of these side characters that I'm like, I don't, that, that seem just as, like, sordid and squalid and mm-hmm. ignoble as he mm-hmm. is. And so I'm laughing, but I also kind of am like, I don't, Think I get it, and and I want to get it. Like I want because I think it's so funny that I want to be like delighted by the book. Uh-huh. And but instead, I just kind of close it, often feeling like cheap. Like my soul needs a shower. Okay, like there's okay. so yeah. much sordid, tawdry, like despicable, small-souled people in mm-hmm. this book. that, mm-hmm. And so in that way, I find it almost like, I mean, we've, we've been comparing it to Woodhouse, mm-hmm. um, which is true. It has the same kind of like, I don't know if the same kind of humor because Woodhouse is very British, but it makes me laugh as much as Woodhouse. But the people in it are so unlikable to me that I'm having a hard time like... Under, I'm having a hard time delighting in it in, in spite of how funny it is.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: So okay. can you kind of give me a different perspective on that?
1: Okay, what about this? And this is going to maybe, I think, support something that you've alluded to early on, on earlier episodes of this podcast. What if this really is a kind of modern medievalism? And what we have here is a kind of mashup of the highs and lows of the medieval world. The highs being um, this constant allusion to Boethius's consolation of philosophy, the allusions to what the world needs is theology and geometry. These are like the highs, the aspirational aspects. And then the lows are Chaucer like all of the kind of flatulence and grit and grime and all of that just seems straight out of Canterbury Tales in so many different ways. And True. maybe like it's a little bit more acute because it's hot dogs instead of, you know, like Pheasant actual swine. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and so like, it's just like, it's hitting us a little bit closer to home. But I think if we were reading... Chaucer, back in the day, we might squirm in a way that we squirm reading A Confederacy of Dunces. But now we go back and we read Chaucer. And there's something a little bit more kind of like romantic about the gross parts about it because we're 700 years distance from it.
0: So what about – so it's interesting because I'm seeing a commentary on like the squalid modernity and you're seeing a commentary on – Squalid medieval,
1: like, yeah, the low part, the kind of like low bodiness that is part of like the medieval literary legacy. Mm -hmm.
0: So, I guess I've interpreted it as a commentary on squalid modernity, Mm -hmm. like, all. Um, and so maybe it's both, maybe that's part of it is kind of getting us to enter into this both and. Um, like as their culture was squalid and dreary. So ours is squalid and dreary and we don't see how they overlap. And I'm not trying to tr- make it into a morality tale. I promise right. I'm not, but I'm, I'm I don't asking the question, I'm asking the question because I haven't interpreted it at the characters, like these uh, the these side characters as, like I do see the Chaucerian elements in them um, for sure. Um, but I've, I've seen it more as like a close-up on – like a microscope on modern life. And mm-hmm. you're saying you see it as kind of like taking these medieval archetypes and transplanting them in order to make a commentary on on medievalism?
1: I don't know if it's like a commentary on medievalism. I just wonder if it's – our author, Tool, mm-hmm. is taking yeah. kind of – a He's just sort of importing.
0: Yeah, if, I get if that. you
1: took mm-hmm. Chaucer and Boethius and maybe seasoned it with a little bit of Aquinas and brought it into the modern world, what would it look like? If you brought it into, like, you know, whatever, 1978 New Orleans, what would that, like, medieval world look like? It would look like a confederacy of dunces. I see.
0: Yeah, I kind of like that. I think that's good. Is there anybody you like in this book? <laughs> Uh, is there anybody that you're like I hope the next section is about So and so It's
1: always about Ignatius Just because yeah, he's going to make me laugh Yeah
0: Like I actually think I like him better than anybody else Except Jones I like, I Jones. like Jones
1: Yeah I like Jones of Jones he seems
0: a like little he's bit heroic
1: like, Yeah he's a little bit heroic And he's like the only one who's Like he's real talk
0: yeah. Yeah. He's like good, good sense. He has, I mean, kind of a, a skew, but a real moral center. Like he's yeah, got this yeah, boldness yeah. of speech and, and, you know, and he's an underdog for obvious reasons, um, having to do with his profession and his, um, yeah. and, and, you know, and being black, like there's all of this kind of, I, but he's the only one who seems to me to have that, I, that I'm like, I actually like this guy.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I think like my the same favorite way.
0: character is Ignatius. Right. But I, I don't I don't like him. Like, but that's okay. I don't have to like every character. I heard, I mean, I hope that our listeners and you know that I'm not looking to like like characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Ignatius is like my favorite character. But Jones is like, I finally like somebody in this book and I'm rooting for somebody. I can't find anybody to root for. Okay. And I think I that have- puts me off my center a little. And I'm with you.
1: So I'm going to admit something that I think I should be a little bit embarrassed about, but I'm not sure. There's a show my brother and sister-in-law really advocated for me to watch. And Galen and I watched like a few episodes.
0: Galen, hold on. Let me, is Galen your Mm -hmm. girlfriend? Yeah.
1: You talking about Galen?
0: Yeah. You talking about Galen, Galen my girlfriend? Yeah. Galen your girlfriend?
1: That's right. That's the one. Yep.
0: Oh, this is so exciting. I want to hear She's more got another about mention. Galen.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think this is her second mention. Didn't I like she I, yeah. I kind of bored her? I know, her name but out I just day. am
0: so happy about this. I think she's I mean, I haven't met her yet, but from what you say, she just seems wonderful and I can't wait to be your friend. So and I just wanted to give you a chance to, you know, be like Damon, my girlfriend. She's so beautiful <laughs> and wonderful. And I yeah. So anyway. So you are watching she a show. Is it Ted watched, Lasso?
1: No. Oh no. my gosh.
0: That girl is crazy about Ted Lasso. This is a great show. I I don't you like that much. No, I don't like it that it. much. No, okay, thanks for like whispering because none of us can hear you now. <laughs> don't tell anybody I don't like
1: Ted Lasso.
0: I, I've never heard of I another don't. human being who doesn't like Ted Lasso. You're the I first. I
1: seriously think something is wrong with me because it's like everything about it is – it's darling. It's got like a moral center. It's, it's, it's just fun. Everything about it. And I'm just like, meh. Um, <laughs> I passed the tea and biscuits. I'm just right. not that interested. You
0: probably just read too much. And now you just have such high standards for the level of quality.
1: Maybe so. so maybe not.
0: It. So now I'm, now I'm psychoanalyzing myself as I have been along the way throughout this whole book. Um, Cause I can, I can wrap my head around just not liking a book. There's plenty of books I don't like, right. I can wrap my head around that. That would be easy. It'd be, and I would admit it. I would say, I, I didn't think I was going to like this book and I don't like this book. Yeah. But it's not quite that I think. And I don't know if I'm speaking for anybody else here. I think I'm having this, like in this cognitive dissonance because I love the humor so much, but I don't really like the story or the characters. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so I've just I'm I and so I'm like I was picking it up this morning. And I'm like I and I I couldn't make myself excited to read it. But as soon as I started reading it, I was like laughing out loud. Yep. And yep. enjoyed reading it like all the way through. But and I'm and I am gonna admit this and I'm not gonna whisper because you know, Tim, everyone can hear me, even if I do whisper. <laughs> <laughs> um but I'm going to say this with a bit of trepidation, knowing it might be my own flaw as a reader. I kind of don't care how it ends. I don't Mm. care what happens. Like I have absolutely no investment in the plot of this story, whether they pay off the debt. I have no idea what's going on with any of these side stories. I have no emotional investment other than I enjoy laughing at the humor.
1: Right. Okay. I, I, I want to actually push back on this.
0: Please. Let's imagine
1: we've made the comparison between this book and Wooster and Jeeves Mm -hmm. novels. If you got to the end of Wooster and Jeeves and the plot line wasn't kind of done up in a nice bow, would you be a little bit disappointed?
0: Yeah. Right. Yes, I would. I mean you've got to get that cow creamer back. You've got to get the cow creamer back. Agatha needs that cow creamer.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) So, I let me put this to you. I mm-hmm. think if these various strands of the book are not patched together in some way, I bet you'll be disappointed.
0: Um, yeah, maybe, maybe I would. Maybe so. I would, I would be profoundly dissatisfied if I get to the end and find out these were leading nowhere. And I believe they're not like, I believe they're yeah. going to come together. Yeah. Right? I think at this point I just, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that's completely true. I think I just don't know what to be invested in even. Yeah. I, I can't tell. Like, is it, is it his, is it him being redeemed in some way? Is it them being able to pay off the debt? Is it like his mom finally kicking him out into the street and him having to fend for himself and act like a man? Um, what's going on with this nightclub and how is it going to tie back in? And mm-hmm. all, all of these kinds of things that, um, where is consolation of philosophy? Where is the $15 folio?
1: Yes. <laughs> so- right. It disappears. It so I,
0: I i can see that he's throwing out strands and is going to bring him in. And hopefully it'll be like this hilarious kind of farcical, you know, finish to the story.
1: I hope so. To be honest, I can't even remember having read this book. I can't even remember how it ends up. And that is probably a testament to like how relatively little the plot matters. I think hmm. we're going to want it, you know, tied up in a bow. I just don't know that it's like absolutely crucial to what's going on.
0: So, what do you think is absolutely crucial to what's going on?
1: Well, I I'm going to say it again. You didn't like it last episode, but I'm going to I'm going to say it again.
0: It's just the funny. It's just it's just funny. I think it's just funny. There's, I mean, I made another case last week, but here's my here's my question then. If that's the case, then like, why so many characters? Why not like a short story about his relationship with his mom or like, there's, Mm -hmm. but but, you know, on the other hand, if I were you, I'd say, well, why the cow creamer, right? Who cares? It's just to be funny. Like, so although the cow creamer does represent the decadence of upper-class British aristocracy, right?
1: And so what does, so, and so you're saying kind of like the car debt is not representative of anything, it's just car it's just debt incurred from a car accident is that right is that kind of what you're no, going to I guess what, what i'm say? saying
0: is that it well i i guess no i guess what i'm saying is i think it is just the same way that 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 woodhouse is the reason it's so funny is because he's making a commentary on the society Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And like that, that is the, that's the setting in which like Jeeves and Wooster create the farce, the British aristocracy mm-hmm. creates the satire. Right. Yeah. And so, um, and this, uh, that's why the cow creamer matters. Right. Because, um, it's important because it's completely unimportant, yeah. like who cares about a cow creamer but it's everything to the story because uh-huh. it represents this excess and decadence and this petty small-mindedness of the people who actually should be investing in and caring about the empire and you know that's the dis- the dissonance between the british aristocratic ideal and the british aristocratic reality and how jeeves and wooster have this like bigger than life uh and and also smaller-than-life interaction with that mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. what makes it so funny, along with just the jokes, right? And yeah. so I think my point was like, this isn't just about the jokes. There has to be a satirical element to it as well that is part of the meaning of the story.
1: Okay, okay. Let me let me try to say what the cow creamer is in Worcester and Jeeves. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to try to echo what you said. It's this kind of metaphor that unlocks – the lampooning of the upper classes in Great Britain. So it's not yes. just a cow creamer. It, it, right. It's kind of a metaphorical way of opening the book up to see something kind of deeper. Mm. And it doesn't like... It and it adds to the, the humor. humor. It makes it more funny. it adds to fun. the humor. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. If there is such a thing in this book... I'm going to say it's not, it doesn't have to do with the plot, the ostensible plot, which is we need to get Ignatius a job so he can earn back, earn money to pay off the debt. I think if there's a metaphor or an item that unlocks this book, I suspect that it's the book, the consolation of philosophy, the Boethius book. So in a second, I'm going to ask you, I think you've already done this, but can you just give us another little kind of like... Quick, you know, two minute course in the consolation of philosophy because, and I'm going to make the case I think part of the reason why this might be the kind of like physical manifestation that unlocks this, like a, a deeper meaning to this book, is that it just shows up everywhere. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two, it's it, Ignatius has an affection for it, he's kind of foisting it on everybody from, um, Patrolman Mancuso. um, He he just he wants everyone to read it, and I wonder if the point of the consolation of philosophy, the kind of moral lesson in that book, might actually be part of the moral lesson if we're supposed to get one from this book.
0: Hmm. That's great.
1: That's the that's the ball on the tee. Now, can you, Heidi, just give us a little? Overview of Boethius in his book.
0: Right, I would be happy to, and I love what you're saying because that even even what you just said opens it up a little bit more to me, especially in relationship in relation to Ignatius. Uh, okay, so uh, the Consolation of Philosophy appeared on the scene in Western culture in the mid sixth century. I think it was. 523, I think it was written by a Roman statesman named Boethius uh, and he wanted to be this is interesting. He wanted to be a philosopher. He wanted to withdraw from the world uh, and and study philosophy. He had a great love for philosophical learning and he loved Plato um, and he wrote extensively on philosophical topics. Uh, however, He decided to forego the career of a philosopher to become a statesman because he so believed in the practical application of philosophy. So he he decided to become a politician so he could do the most good with his philosophical uh, training. Uh, And so he went and he was so gifted. He went into politics and he became exceedingly successful, actually um, becoming essentially the right hand man or chief counsel. I can't remember the exact title um, to the Roman emperor at the time. Then, as all successful men do, Tim, I'm sure you know this, you probably have many out for your life. Um, There was uh, a lot of envy about his position. And so he had enemies that framed him. for a capital crime, treason. And he was indeed arrested and thrown into prison where he sunk into a very deep depression. And that's where the book Consolation of Philosophy was birthed. Uh, So Consolation of Philosophy is a dialogue. It's a really, really cool book. It's actually a really pretty easy read. um, And it's short. uh, And It's only five books long um, with a few subsections within, you know, eight to 10 subsections within each book. Um, So it's not very long. It's pretty easy. And everybody would love this book. I, like I'm convinced everybody, every thoughtful Christian should read this book at, well, at least once mm. in their lifetime, or at least pick it up. Uh, so uh, the, the book is framed as a dialogue. Like he's, he's lamenting his fate in prison and complaining about everything he's been through. Uh, and then this woman appears to him, philosophy, lady philosophy. She appears to him in prison and she asks him what's wrong. And he says, well, this and this and this. And he just vents everything to her. And she's like, get your head Get get yourself together, like, and then she consoles mm-hmm. him with an entire long, uh, very comprehensive treatise on suffering and the great and greatness of soul. This is why consolation should cons- should and ought to console you in your grief. You claim to be a philosopher, and you're failing right now, because philosophy is practical. It should impact your soul and your life and make you better. That's her entire point. You cannot claim to be a philosopher until you have suffered and internalized philosophy and turned it into the good, right? Um, And that is part of her point. Within it, as a subsection, she comes up with... this, for the first time in Western culture, we see um, a really, really interesting idea that's kind of taken from classical philosophy and then turned into later medieval classics, latched onto this idea, and it came from Bo- Boethius. The idea of what he calls fortune's wheel, uh, which is that there's this, you know, we as moderns tend to see life as a road, right? Like an infinite forward progression. The medieval saw it very differently. They saw it in as cyclical. So if you're at the top of the wheel, you have fortune is kind to you, but fortune will inevitably turn the wheel. Fortune is a goddess who will inevitably turn the wheel and you will go to the bottom and then come back up. And there's lots and lots of references to that, obviously in a Confederacy of Dunces. That idea of fortune's wheel becomes absolutely essential to future medieval thinking. And so does consolation of philosophy as a book. Um, And so, and even as I'm saying these things now to transition back to Confederacy of Dunces, I'm hearing to your point, how important that this book is to the, to Ignatius Riley who loves this book and is living out absolutely none of its principles and right. right? Um, And claiming them as his own and even, you know, evangelizing them to others and Mm -hmm. then completely divorcing himself from it. That's um, that whole idea of like, he's got the head and he's got the belly, but he lacks the chest Mm -hmm. and consolation of philosophy could be one of those things that, that builds that up in him. And yet he doesn't have the eyes to see it.
1: He does make references to, like, I think at the end of one of the sections, he kind of cries, ah, alas, fortune's wheel turns again. So great. Right. So it's so funny. funny. Because he's kind of he's I mean, he starts at the bottom and he gets thrown down to the bottom. Like there's no real ascent for him. There's no there's no ascent of character. Like his ascent is when he's hired by Levy Pants and he manages to get paid for not working. That's his idea of ascent, you know, when he gets thrown down off the wheel. He's not really any lower or any higher than he was when he was ascending. So even that part, it, it's just a little bit of irony that he's not He's not even abiding by that aspect of Boethius. The wheel right. of fortune doesn't really seem to do much for him.
0: Right. Well, and I think that, to your point, that that is clear from the beginning, like that idea of he, him not living up to the ideal. But what you just said a few minutes ago that kind of clicked something for me is to compare it to the cow creamer in, in the Woodhouse in Jeeves and Worcester. Yeah. And as like, like this recurring weight of symbolism, this subjective correlative, somebody's taking a shot and putting it on the bingo board right now. <laughs> um, the subjective correlative to the idea of the, the you know the great divorce between the head and the belly and the um and and actions and ideals like he's just such a strange mix of ideal idealistic and loathsome you know and um and if and the fact that constellation philosophy keeps coming up and the whole point is that this is the statesman who wanted to withdraw from the world but instead engaged with it in order to do the most good and Ignatius J. Riley is doing the exact opposite of that
1: yeah right. Yeah, he's Um, disengaging from the world. And so
0: in that way, the book itself is like the cow creamer and it kind of ties everything together. That is helpful for me. That's really helpful. Thank you.
1: I'm going to read a section. Uh, It's page 202 in my book. It's from when Patrolman Mancuso, who's received a copy of The Consolation of Philosophy from Ignatius J. Riley, And then he's kind of condemned to work a bathroom to find any suspicious characters that he can find. He finds no suspicious characters until George, this young man who kind of like runs photographs for Lana, who works at the night of joy, (laughs) one of these kind of like secondary tertiary characters, he shows up and Mancuso tries to arrest him. And so I'm just going to read a paragraph. What I would like to hear from you, Heidi afterwards is if you read this to the Scott White, (laughs) would he laugh? And if so, what sort of laugh would it be? Here's the section. (laughs) Patrolman Mancuso reached out to grab George by the arm and handcuff him, but George snatched the consolation of philosophy from under Patrolman Mancuso's arm and slammed it into the side of his head. Ignatius had bought a large, eloquent, limited edition of the English translation, and all $15 of its price hit Patrolman Mancuso in the head with the force of a dictionary. Patrolman Mancuso bent over to pick up the monocle, which had fallen from his eye. When he straightened up again, he saw the boy scraping rapidly out of the door of the restroom with a book in his hand. He wanted to run after him, but his head was throbbing too badly. He returned to his booth to rest and grew even more depressed.
0: That's so funny.
1: Would, would the Scott White appreciate that? Would he, would he laugh?
0: I think he would. I think he would. I was reading a lot it, of sections to these Scott White this this weekend uh this week.
1: Snickering. That one,
0: I think. I think that particular part, he might need a little bit of back. He's not read Boethius. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you might it might just be the guy hitting him on the head with a book. But yeah. If you compare it to like a. <laughs> Like a street preacher hitting you on the head with a Bible. That might yeah. you know that's <laughs> so, kind of
1: what it yeah, it's kind of yeah. what it is. That's that's kind of what I got from it.
0: <laughs> that part's so funny. That made me laugh. Oh man, this really is such a funny book. I feel like
1: I kind of feel like you're maybe coming around a little bit.
0: I I yeah, I think I I think I need to finish it. Yeah, I think once I finish it I will have just a better grasp To me right now Truth be told The lack of of cohesion in the plot Feels like a flaw in the writing Okay Now that I might change my mind on Once we get to the end Again it might come together so beautifully That I'm like oh that was totally worth it That was perfectly written He made exactly the right choice
1: But right now the sidebar in The Night of Joy just seems arbitrary to you. Can you does Yeah? yeah.
0: What's up with that?
1: We met, you know, we like just to review. We met them in the mm-hmm. opening section of the book, and Ignatius and his mom go in and they order a drink, you know, after Ignatius is almost arrested and taken in by Mancuso. It seems like it's more been uh, a platform for introducing characters than it's been anything else. Like there's this kind of question of, you know, the woman who wants to be an exotic dancer and brings in the cockatoo or the parakeet or whatever. And it's, I mean, it's, it's funny at points, but I'm also kind of like, this has got to be going towards some grander plot reunion with Ignatius and or his mother. It's got to be. And I think it is. It's got to be.
0: Yeah, well, in Santa Bataglia and um, Robichaux—is that his name, Claude? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Claude, yeah, yeah. and Claude, uh, who's worried
1: about all the communists.
0: Yes, yes, and the—I mean, there's just there's all these side characters that I don't—I don't, I don't get—and and the Levies, as you pointed out, um, yeah, you know, this yep. weird mixture of like upper class depravity and smallness of soul. Like it's—it is a just uh-huh. a very um, like the characters are so well drawn. I just don't know why they're there. And yeah. so as we get to yeah. the end.
1: Those are beautiful knickknacks. Yeah, what yeah. are they doing right. here?
0: That's a great description of it. So once we get to the end and I see how it ties together, I'm hoping I will come back and eat my words and say, I totally get it. That was uh-huh. exactly the right way to write this book
1: but we 're right now only about halfway through, so right. we still have got a ways to go before we figure out like what exactly is going on with these side characters. OK. I would like to read as we kind of start to move toward the end of the show, um, a section from Ignatius j. riley 's work under the pseudonym work. Working Boy. <laughs>
0: I do have a segment to read from that. I will see if okay. it's the same segment. I
1: hope I yes. hope it's not the same segment, but it might be. So this for me is on page 238. Okay. Uh, Ignatius has been, has taken a job as a weenie salesman <laughs> and he's selling hot dogs now in the French Quarter, which is just the cesspool of modern New Orleans for him. It's just, it could not be any worse. Uh And so here are the top three paragraphs from his description of his work in the French Quarter. Clearly, an area like the French Quarter is not the proper environment for a clean living, chaste, prudent, (laughs) and impressionable young working boy. Did Edison, Ford, and Rockefeller have to struggle against such odds? Clyde's fiendish mind has not stopped at so simple an abasement, however, because I am allegedly handling what Clyde calls the tourist trade. I have been comparisoned in a costume of sorts. Judging from the characters that I have had on this first day within the new route, the tourists seem to be the same old vagrants I was just selling to in the business district. In a stupor, induced by Sterno, they have doubtlessly stumbled down into the quarter and thus, to Clyde's senile mind, qualify as tourists. I wonder whether Clyde has ever even had the opportunity to see degenerates and wrecks and drifters who buy and apparently subsist on Paradise products. Between the other vendors, totally beaten and ailing itinerants whose names are are things like Buddy, Pal, Sport, Top, Buck, and Ace, and my customers... (laughs) I'm apparently trapped in a limbo of lost souls.
0: <laughs> Do you know what's really funny? I read that passage. And while I was reading it and laughing out loud, once again, L O L the nicknames, Buddy, Pal, Sport, Top, Buck, and Ace, I was laughing so hard. And I thought to <laughs> myself, Tim will love this part. Like, I just knew that you would oh, love you, that. Oh, did you really? Yes. You were right. You were yes.
1: so right. I love it.
0: I am okay, going um, to read. What about
1: you? I'm yeah. going to read
0: The Pirate Fight because I could not hold it oh, together. Good. I was like, I read it like four times and then I like called everyone in my house to come and listen to me read it again. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. And I don't even think I'm going to make it through without laughing my head off, <laughs> even reading it on the air. Okay.
1: R- remind, what page are we on?
0: Well, you have a different book than I do, but it's just oh, okay. the next page after what you read. So, great, I bet great. it's 239. Okay. Um, the cent- that paragraph begins, but back to the matter at hand. But mm-hmm. back to the matter at hand, Clyde's vengeance. The vendor who formerly had the Quaker route wore an improbable pirate's outfit, a paradise vendor's nod to New Orleans folklore and history, a Clydean attempt to link the hot dog with Creole legend. Clyde is... <laughs> Clyde forced me to try it on in the garage. The costume, of course, had been made to fit the tubercular and underdeveloped frame of the former vendor. And no amount of pulling and pushing and inhaling and squeezing could get it onto my muscular body. (laughs) Therefore, Therefore, a compromise of sorts was made. About my cap, I tied the red sateen pirate scarf. I screwed the one golden earring, a large novelty store hoop of an earring, onto my left earlobe. I affixed the black plastic cutlass to the side of my white vendor smock with a safety pin. Hardly an impressive pirate, you will say. However, when I studied myself in the mirror, I was forced to admit that I appeared rather fetching in a dramatic way. Brandishing the plastic cutlass at Clyde, I cried, Walk the plank, Admiral! this, I should have known, was too much for his literal and sausage-like mind. He grew most alarmed and proceeded to attack me with his spear-like fork. We lunged about in the garage like two swashbucklers in an especially inept historical film for several moments. Fork and Cutlass clicking against each other madly. Realizing that my plastic weapon was hardly a match for a long fork wielded by a maddened Methuselah, Realizing that I was seeing Clyde at his worst, I tried to end our little duel. I called out pacifying words. I entreated. I finally surrendered. All the semicolons in that sentence, by the way, are super Uh funny Uh to me. Still, Clyde came, my pirate costume so great a success that it had apparently convinced him that we were back in the golden days of romantic old New Orleans when gentlemen decided matters of hot dog armor at 20 paces.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: It was then that a light dawned in my intricate mind. I knew that Clyde was really trying to kill me. He would have, he would have the perfect excuse, self-defense. I had played right into his hands. Fortunately for me, I fell to the floor. <laughs> I had backed into one of the carts, lost my always precarious balance, and had fallen down. Although I struck my head rather painfully against the cart, I cried pleasantly from the floor. You win, sir. Then I silently paid homage to dear old Fortuna for snatching me from the jaws of death by Rusty Fork. By
1: Rusty Fork.
0: <laughs> That's not only one of the funniest paragraphs I've ever read in my life. It's one of the most well-written. It is it's absolutely so good. brilliant. I, I mean, hats off, sir. <laughs> so good.
1: It was then that a light dawned in my <laughs> intricate mind. I knew that Clyde was really trying to
0: kill me. It's so good. The decided matters of hot dog honor at twenty basis. <laughs> Heidi, I wonder.
1: I wonder if I'm going to make a comparison. All right. If you you have are kind of like being exposed to a confederacy of dunces, and you know Probably it's kind of like the, the odor center. and right the odor and the kind of. Um, yeah, all of the It's partly the physicality the and part yep. of like
0: the tawdry, just like the shoddy nature of the of the story. But anyway, keep going. Yeah.
1: But the the humor is kind of wearing you down a little bit. Like it's getting it's getting to you, isn't it?
0: Oh yeah. No, I love it. Yeah. I love the humor. I especially love his writing. I love I loved that Miss <laughs> Miss Trixie called him Gloria. <laughs>
1: Oh yeah. Oh, that yeah. is
0: so funny.
1: <laughs> it's so funny.
0: Everything about this book is funny. And if if that is the purpose, I, I am I am all in on the humor. I'm totally all in on the humor. That like I said, the, the dissonance is not that I don't like the book. The dissonance is that I love the humor and don't like the character or the story very much. And so I'm just trying to like yeah. resolve that somehow or waiting for the book to resolve it for me. I'm passively yeah. accepting the humor and waiting for the uh-huh. book to dazzle me with its brilliance at the end.
1: <laughs> that sounds great. But sounds I really like appreciate right your
0: thoughts. Like it's there, it was really helpful. Um, and I want to love every book on earth. And so I am happily willing to be convinced of anything. And so I really appreciate your um, zealous defense, but also your um, spirit of enabling that allows me to still experience (laughs) what I am experiencing in the book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I do what I can,
0: Yeah, no, you're you're great. Do you have any final thoughts, Tim?
1: I don't. Uh, You know, no, I'm going to keep the string going. I keep waiting for this relationship between Ignatius and Myrna to actually, I just am still waiting for them to be in the same room. And I keep waiting for it and it keeps not happening. So I'm going to keep waiting for it until it happens or until the book ends.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. How about you? Final thoughts?
0: Um, Well, I mean, I feel like that about all the things I said on the show today. Like I'm just, I'm here for it. I'm just waiting for it to dazzle me. Um, (laughs) I, I, I mean, as a, as a therapist, like I, I think what he's doing with the, you know, hands over your kid's ears for what I'm about to say for two seconds. I think what he's doing with um, Ignatius's um, like latent toxic sexuality is really brilliant. Mm-hmm. Like it's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so well written. It's so psychologically consistent. It it adds a lot of humor and I think a lot of pathos. And and an um, and an element of like creepiness to the story, like it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so disturbing, and yet it works so completely well that it. Um, it makes what is otherwise just a purely hilarious book have like a creepy quality to it. And that's hard to do yeah. as a writer. Like there's all yeah. of these different levels of playing with our minds that's happening in this book. So that's probably my final thought. I don't want to dig too much into it yeah, because that's, that's, you know, bleh, but that you don't want it to works. dwell on it. Right. Yeah. All right, Tim. So I'm gonna ask you to do something for me because I'm I can yeah. start a show just fine, but I'm not very good at ending it. Oh so yeah. I'm just wondering if you could do it for me. You could save me from myself.
1: I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna give it a shot. Thanks. Hey, on behalf of Heidi White and David Kern in Absentia, we want to thank everybody for joining us for part three of the Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. We would encourage you to join us next week. And until then, as always, we wish you happy reading.